The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League, where pre-Christmas games actually do bring penalties. We salute Salah's spot-kick supremacy, but reckon the Wolves' handball call was actually the pits. Plus, other bold conclusions on the weekend's action. Are Watford due for a new manager? Have Newcastle had their one win all season? And from our severe on-field stuffings department, what's with Betis fans throwing their toy animals on the pitch? We'll discuss that and much, much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Well then, listener, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Totally Football Show. As we sit here, it is Monday the 13th of December. Daniel Storey is here with us. Hey, Daniel. Hi, James. Also, Dan Bardell. Hello, James. Sorry, what was that? Can't make it out with that accent. Uh, I'll tell you what, we'll come on to it, I'm sure, but I know that that journalist and I don't understand what he says. (laughs) No, fair enough. Um, that was, sorry, it was slightly oblique reference to Jurgen Klopp's post-match moment in the uh, the Liverpool Villa game. Also here, Colin Miller. Hey, Colin. Hello, James. Hello. Ah, lovely. Excellent stuff. Uh, it is uh, Monday morning. We've got action for the weekend. Mid-week round scheduled, although asterisk galore uh, surrounding the fixtures at the moment after we saw, of course, one game drop from the Premier League this weekend, the uh, Brighton Spurs game, also one from the Championship as well. And Villa and United, among the clubs who've post-fixtures this weekend, recorded positive COVID tests among their players and, and staff. What's what's the current situation as we sit here early Monday morning? Well, yes, I mean, Spurs are, are saying as it stands, things will go ahead. Conte's had them in. I think the first team area of the training ground isn't yet open, um, but there is an area of the training ground that is open and that they are using. So as it stands, that one will go ahead. But obviously, if they get any more positive tests this week, I think that is probably in serious jeopardy. And and yeah, and Manchester United and, and Dan's Villa have, you know, reportedly got issues as well. So... Um, I think it's probably going to be a case of wait and see and, and these decisions are going to be made pretty late down the line. Mm, yep, Spurs due to be playing Leicester on Thursday night. Daniel, you're sounding remarkably fresh given your extraordinary weekend. Your... <laughs> yes, it's all an act, I'll, I'll be honest. I feel quite groggy this morning. Daniel, for those who didn't know, and the piece actually I think is out on Tuesday, completed an 800-mile odyssey uh, this weekend with Plymouth Argyle supporters and their away trip to Sunderland. Mm, yes, mm. 21 hours on a coach. Wow. There's the proclaimers and then there's Daniel Story. <laughs> if you were ever going to miss a day of Premier League while sat on a coach, there is an argument that Saturday wasn't a bad one to do. Let's just quickly check on the results of that. 14 Premier League goals scored across the Friday and Saturday. Half of them were penalties. Top three all needed goals from 12 yards to win. Uh, Man City 1-0 over Wolves, same for Liverpool over Villa. Chelsea needed two penalties in their 3-2 victory over Leeds. Meanwhile, it was a lone Ronaldo penalty for Man United at Norwich as they moved closer to fourth place. They're now just one point behind West Ham, who were held goalless at Burnley on Sunday. Arsenal bullied Saints 3-0, Leicester thumped Newcastle 4-0, Brentford beat Watford 2-1 and Palace ended Everton's brief flicker of resurgence with a 3-1 defeat at Selhurst Park. Uh, loads of games scheduled midweek. We'll get onto those soon enough. But your top three then still separated by just two points. But now eight points clear of the rest of the pack. Was there a little bit of kind of post Champions League deflation uh, for the sides that have been busy in Europe? 
the annoying thing for me is that I decided on Saturday that I would stay in and watch three football matches, and they were all one nil penalty games. So it wasn't mm. wasn't a weekend well spent. I thought Man City looked a bit groggy. I thought Liverpool Salah wasn't quite up to his his normal very very high standard. So I think there is an argument that the Champions League pl- played a part. I mean, it's quite bizarre that Salah played in midweek against Milan because they didn't really need him to. Yet he still seems to play every single game. It's as if they feel they must get every inch out of him before they get to the mm. the African Cup of Nations. But yeah, I think there is an argument to be made for that. The, the games itself, if you, if you look at the matches and you look at the results, you probably think this is a, a very mundane weekend of fixtures. But the kind of the actual individual games, they they were all they were all competitive in in different ways. And and whilst yeah, whilst obviously you have the Champions League action taking its toll, I, I don't think it was necessarily a case that the teams were were feeling the fatigue. I think it's just the time of the season when you've so many games so quickly that it's very hard to prepare for them individually in that sense from a tactical point of view and and teams like Wolves City and, and Villa Liverpool are teams who can who can set up very well and obviously Leeds Chelsea was a different story but each of those matches obviously decided by by those sort of subjective penalty decisions and mm. and I guess that there was kind of a lot of a lot of narrative in that sense and the games could easily have sort of swung and any any of those teams could very easily have dropped points this weekend well let, let's start our roundup at Anfield which beyond the action on field had the uh, off field excitements of Steven Gerrard returning, clapping the crowd, all that kind of thing, subdued but respectful recognition of the relationship. That guy did it tick all your Stevie G back at Anfield bingo boxes, Daniel? Yes, it did. In that they ultimately didn't win the game, but they put up enough of a fight and um, were defensively resilient enough. I think that he probably improved his. His case and Gerard's been—he's been trying to move away from that kind of sense that he's preordained to replace Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. But he gets to do that because everyone else is saying it, so he can kind of quietly get on with his job. And and he's made Villa a very difficult team to beat. I, I don't think they deserved to get anything out of the game on the balance of play. They, they, Liverpool had far more shots and had far more you know, territory and possession. But um, ultimately, they aren't getting outclassing games anymore the games that they are losing to, to Manchester City and Liverpool were were tight and they seem capable of beating any other team and that's a pretty good recipe to finish seventh or eighth this season mm. Stephen did score a bit of a zinger on Michael Owen post game don't know if you saw that when Michael Owen who was back in the studio said uh, I always hated going back to Anfield and Stevie did reply well if I'd played for Man United I would do too <laughs> followed by nervous <laughs> nervous chuckles um Dan, no shots at all on target from Villa. No, but mm. I've seen I've seen enough. I've seen enough across the. Well, I've seen more than enough across the five games. But like Daniel says, the two games against Manchester City and Liverpool were very, very competitive. Un- really, really unlucky not to get a point against Manchester City. Liverpool deserved to win on Saturday. I've no qualms with the result. I'm not sure about the penalties. I'm sure we're going to come onto them, but. Liverpool were a different level. Steven Gerrard said it. Liverpool, they're an in- incredible side. The tempo in which they play, the way they press, the way they counter-press, the difference between watching them and watching Manchester City on Saturday, I thought was quite stark. I know Liverpool are going to have problems with players going off to the, the Cup of Nations, but I just think they're an incredible side. And when they're full tilt, they are absolutely the best side in, in the league. Villa had, Villa had a game plan. I think the defensive side of it in the main worked, but 
I think Steven Gerrard would have wanted us to be a bit more productive on the counter-attack, but we never really managed to make it happen at all, and, and, and that's the way it goes sometimes. But yeah, Liverpool thoroughly deserved the win, just slightly debatable circumstances for the penalty, I, I would say. I must admit, I thought that penalty was the least debatable of the of the ones on Saturday. I don't know if uh, what, what anybody else thinks about that. So it was Tyrone Mings on, on, uh, on Mo Salah. Yeah, I, th- I think Villa have more of a case for maybe getting one of their own than that not being a penalty. I think they were all, as Colin said at the top of the show, they're all kind of subjective, which when big clubs get subjective penalties en masse, it always kind of creates this sort of conspiracy theorist, PL Anon theory that... Um, you know that big there's big club bias but the reality is is that if your club has all the pressure and all the territory you're more likely to get penalties and I think it was more a case of that right not only take penalties but score them as well in the case of Mo Salah now successfully converted each of his last 15 penalties in the Premier League that's the second longest streak in the division's history just to put that in perspective Matt Letizier of course uh, with 23 consecutive ones. It's, I mean, it's worth pointing out because, as Jurgen Klopp was saying afterwards, it's by no means a given that just because you get given a penalty, you're actually going to convert it. Right, Man City? The most the most interesting uh, part of this game for me is that, again, it was another clean sheet for Liverpool and Aston Villa didn't really have a, an attack throughout it, but Thiago was starting. And in the eight matches that Thiago has started for Liverpool this year, they've only conceded one goal. And if you look at, obviously, the, the sort of first part of the season when he was out injured and he had a couple of fitness issues, they conceded two or more goals in six different games. So since his reintroduction to the team, they have become so defensively solid. And it, it's interesting because Thiago isn't the sort of typical player you think of in that sense, but I guess it shows that the that those individual players who obviously have the ball retention, but they also have the sort of positional awareness to sort of keep that midfield nice and compact to, to protect the defence because... When you sort of look at Jurgen Klopp's teams, the central midfield doesn't really do much in terms of creativity or in terms of adding sort of goal-scoring threat. Although Thiago does that as well, it's it's more a case of they're there to provide the sort of shield for the for the back two. And so often earlier in the season, Liverpool had looked a little bit vulnerable like that, especially in their three-two defeat at West Ham. Whenever there was constant counter-attacks going going through the midfield, and and that was a real danger for them. But they seem to have solved that very quickly. And I mean, Aston Villa are a team who've got attacking threat and, and very good attacking players but they just couldn't weren't able to create anything throughout the match and that's sort of been a been a trend in recent Liverpool games where they really have a lot of control over that and again it's that sort of side of things that, are, that is most impressive for me at the minute mm. Well a 1-0 win for Liverpool then although Klopp was defeated uh, post-game in his press conference thusly Your thoughts on how Villa lined up today and how Villa played I'm, I'm the opposition reporter just, your, your take on Villa today for me please Sorry What? How did Villa play today? How did Villa do? Dan, do you get that a lot? Uh, <laughs> I do. I do an awful lot of podcasts. I often find in the in the comments there might be some little digs at the Birmingham accent. I don't feel like it's the most fancied accent ac- across <laughs> the country. I, I also feel like it's quite rare that you hear you hear people within football with with this accent talking on podcasts and stuff. So I, I do feel like it comes with a little bit of heat, the Birmingham accent. But as I said at the top end, I. I, I know that journalist, Ashley Price, and I can barely understand what he says because he talks at 100 miles per hour. He's almost right. the equivalent of the way Klopp plays football, but in which the speed in which he talks, un- right. unbelievable. So I can completely understand why Jurgen Klopp didn't understand a word of, of what of what he said. But yeah, I, th- I think he was just a bit nervous talking to someone like Klopp. Right. I, I must admit, and I don't want to sound, you know, anyway, but I, I think you're, um, I think the Brummie accent uh, can 
confers a, a certain niche appeal, you know, beyond the obvious <laughs> delights that you bring anyway. But I, I revel in the rich, in the rich. Is it a draw? I'm not sure. But the, 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 the deep twang of your vowels and consonants. Mm. I thought Peaky Blinders was going to put the accent on the map. But the problem is the accents on Peaky Blinders aren't very good. Are they not? So I, don't, so I think everyone now has a false perception of what the, the Brummy accent should sound like. Right. Which is the sexiest accent by your definition? Probably probably Irish, I would say. Would you say? Yeah. Irish or, or Edinburgh, Scotland, I think, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely I not say, Birmingham. I bet it, it's coming, I think. I mean, <laughs> Scotland has held its own in the broadcasting arena for so long. Anyway, there you go. Liverpool are worthy winners... I think we can agree on Saturday. Did Chelsea and City get away with one? City had that 1-0 uh, victory over Wolves. Groggy, I think you called them, Colin. A Wolves down to 10 men after Raul Jimenez was Jimenez to his own team. Extraordinary moment, that. The first booking, perhaps a little unfair. The second one, sheer madness. I think I think the second one obviously just sort of came out of frustration, though, in the sense that he was trying to block the quick free kick. And I, I mean, obviously, this was a... This was a very silly thing to do, but the first the first booking was very harsh, and I mean, I, I saw the opinion that there could have been a bit of common sense almost from the from the official not to not to sort of send them off straight away, and that kind of ruined the game from a spectacle point of view even even more so. Um, but mm. I, I mean, like he only had himself to blame, and I think I think him and S realized as soon as he'd done it, like he took so long to leave the field. I think he was just very very annoyed at himself. I don't I don't think Will's gonna have too many complaints. Of with that although what I would say and I know I said earlier that a lot of these penalty calls were subjective I think the penalty that Man City got in this game was was the wrong call I I, I, I know there was a still that showed it hitting uh, Joao Moutinho's sort of armpit and the top of his side rather than his arm and I think it's because his arm is up in the air and it sort of from the first sort of angle you saw it kind of go because his arms up, it must have hit it, but it, but it didn't on, on, upon the replay, and I thought that was very harsh. I actually thought City could have had a penalty in the first half for the Max Kilman. It was about a minute or two after the red card, and he was sort of leaning in there and it hit the top of his shoulder area, and I kind of thought, again, it's these sorts of calls that are very very much this season. They're instructed to be like, well, you know, use your discrepancy at the time, and you're sort of, you're sort of ruling it against the on-field decision as well, but I thought whilst Wolves were pretty much against the cost for the entire match. The way in which they lost this was was quite mm. quite unfortunate. Dan, you mentioned the fact that City will have fewer people heading off to Africa Cup of Nations, but their form at home has been a little bit shaky of late, no? Yeah, after the Southampton game at the start of the season, I, re- I remember that was out nil nil nil. if I recall correctly. They've had a couple of dodgy games at home. They're, just, they're such a good side, but they all, almost become a bit robotic. In, in games like that, and if the goal doesn't come early, they, they do at times struggle to to open teams. The Wolves have been very, very good defensively for the majority of the season, so they're one of the harder teams to break down in the Premier League. So from that point of view, I, I do understand it, but I just look at the difference, in the, like I said, in the way Liverpool play at home and, and the way Man City play at home. There's, there's a tangible difference there that I, I think will come with advantages for Liverpool as the, as the season goes on. But Man City, again, they did they did enough to, to win the game. It will just be the circumstances in which it came that will frustrate the Wolves fans. The Jimenez thing changed change the game. I will say his first yellow card came within like a flurry of when people have been booked for similar things. So mm. although on the face of it, you look at that yellow card and think it's incredibly harsh. 
the way the game was set and the way the last five, ten minutes had been, the yellow card was probably fair. And then to, to do what he did afterwards is, is absolutely mindless. And then to have the audacity to, to clap the Wolves fans as, as he walked off. I'd be fuming if I was sat in that away end because you've just ruined their day, essentially. And mm. you're clapping them as you walk off. Madness. Madness. All right. Well, Man City are at home again midweek, circumstances permitting. They'll be taking on a lead side held together by sticky tape. Uh, Daniel, who, despite that, gave Chelsea a real game of it Saturday afternoon, taking the lead indeed at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I, it was a good response from Leeds. There's no doubt about that because they were missing Calvin Phillips, they were missing Patrick Bamford again, they were missing Rodrigo, and and it, it goes on and on. Pascal Stroik would have played centre back. Bielsa said before the game, uh, and he again got injured in, on Friday in training, so that's becoming a huge issue. But. Bielsa has clearly realised that Chelsea are having defensive issues at the moment, so they really pressed high at the pitch. They they weren't unlucky on their penalties. I, don't, I think I don't think I think both were penalties. Just kind of lapses in concentration when Chelsea pushed on. But if Leeds can take any kind of heart from losing at the moment, given where they are in the league, then then they certainly will from this. Mm, heartbreaking though to concede that 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 uh, second penalty. What was it? Four minutes into time added on. Mm. Yeah, it's, it was one of those challenges. It was very similar to, to Trusty Kong's on uh, Friday night against Brentford in that you can just see in players' minds they get, they're get they constantly told to keep calm, level-headed, and yet in the, in the last minute of games, you do start to panic and you do have a tendency when you're tired to dive in and make silly mistakes, and that's exactly what both did. Chelsea's defensive problems have been, have been amply cited and, of course, the absences that contribute to that. Uh, Tuchel as well, suggesting that the players that are on field haven't been putting in quite as much effort and intensity of late. One of the interesting things I thought he, he said after the game was kind of we played as if we had something to lose, which uh, I think you can probably kind of extrapolate to Chelsea as a whole because they were brilliant last season under Tuchel in the Champions League where nobody really thought they'd win it until they got close. And then in the Premier League, they kind of surged from where Lampard left them and then almost choked it at the end of the season so I think that's the kind of next step for Tuchel's Chelsea is they they do look a little bit panicked now when you know they are expected to be title challenges it almost reminds me of that Jose Mourinho little horse missive when he was in charge and wanted to kind of completely downplay the expectation and pressure on the players because they are playing as if there's a little bit of pressure on them now. I was just going to say, do you think there's almost been too much rotation at Chelsea now, where they're, they're now struggling to get a settled rhythm? Because it does feel like the 11 changes completely every game. And when you're making constant changes to, in the defence, I know they've got a few injuries at the moment, it can sometimes lead to a bit of disorganisation. And they, they've gone from having the best defence to, I think, they're now that they've conceded in the last three or four games and that they look a little bit all over the place at times. So I don't know whether there's almost too much rotation at Chelsea. Mm, eight goals conceded across their last three in all competitions, but a lot of that due to the uh, Tuchel's hands being forced by uh, injuries and that. The other thing I think about Chelsea is that they have four defenders out of contract uh, coming up this summer, and the longer those situations are are prolonged, the, the bigger a problem that, that becomes. Um, and I think the big one's Antonio Rudiger. 
who well, certainly a lot of the noises coming out of Madrid and the Spanish press at the minute are that Real Madrid are in advanced talks to, to complete his signing as, as a free agent next summer. And that's that would be a massive, massive loss for Chelsea. And Cesar Aspilicueta is out of contract as well. And I know that Barcelona, despite their, their financial problems, have been sniffing around him. And, and then obviously Thiago Silva and Christensen. And OK, there's probably one or two of them will, will renew in the coming weeks and months. But that is isn't that is an issue that they've got. That When you've so many players in, in, in a particular position who are coming to the end of their contract, and it's almost like they have the power in the renewal process and mm. we've talked a lot about how well run a club Chelsea have been and you look at the sort of squad and the youth players they've got coming through is magnificent but it all it always seems to be that they, they have players who seem to be less than happy at what they earn and then that's that tends to lead to these contract negotiations being played out and I wonder if that's another issue that's kind of in the background now that might that might be playing in the individual form and collective form as well. Colin I keep seeing Barcelona linked to uh, signings uh, this Monday for example uh, Erling Haaland, for example, I'm sure would be a fine addition to their, their squad. How is it? Is it just journalists kind of taking a year or two to catch up with the reality that even though they're called Barcelona, they have absolutely not even a pot to, you know, uh, or, or is there some secret fund that they've got? How is it that they, is there any realistic possibility of a club that wasn't allowed to make any signings uh, last summer or register the players that they had brought in rather suddenly becoming active again? It, it's a really, really bizarre situation in the sense that they are completely, <laughs> completely skinned. They really don't have any money. In fact, they do need to sell players. But at the same time, the flip side of that is that they are speaking with Ferran Torres, who wants to join them from Manchester City. He's not particularly happy there. And you kind of think, well, that's a player who you would imagine has a transfer valuation of, what, 60, 70 million? You know, right. there is absolutely no way Barcelona can afford that. But the, the situation that they have is that Barcelona as a club and the president Juan Porta are very keen to to talk up the possibility of, of them having this this financial power and this ability to, to do these manoeuvres, as he calls it, in, in the transfer market, which does seem pretty fanciful. But at the same time, this is a president and a club who are willing to take out multiple long-term loan deals with banks, which obviously solves a lot of the short-term issues and then gives them that little bit of wriggle room to spend. And at the end of the day, they are still Barcelona in the sense that this is a club who will appeal to a lot of players who are from Spain who might think this is a this is maybe like a challenge that we can accept to sort of go to this club and kind of be the kind of be the player to help help turn the situation around. But yeah, I mean, talk of players like Haaland and players with, the, with those sorts of valuations is is totally unrealistic probably okay. for the next several years. Right. No, I understand that there are sporting challenges at at, at Barcelona that. You know, some players might even find enticing, but this, the sheer fact that they weren't even able to register players last summer does does suggest that a lot of this might be, as you say, posturing and that. Anyway, uh, all very interesting. Uh, Champions League sides not particularly uh, splendid this weekend, but getting through with the penalty. Also included Man United, who Saturday tea time were away at Carrow Road. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo sorting this out for them from the spot. Uh, this was a second straight clean sheet for Ralph Rangnick in his second Premier League game in charge. It's pretty good. The tackling stats were way up as well. Uh, yeah. Everything proceeding to plan, Daniel? Well, look, they, they've they won consecutive league games 1-0 for the first time in, I think, five and a half years. And Rangnick will be happy with that because he, he he's mentioned it before that the amount of shots United were facing, I think they were about... 14th in the league when he took over for shots faced which for a club of their magnitude is is nonsense 
uh, and he has sorted that. But this was far more Solskjaer Manchester United than it was Ralph Rangling Manchester United on Saturday because they weren't very good. They the the pressing. I mean, if it was there, you really had to look for it. And the the whole point of Rangnick's pressing game is, is it should be very obvious from minute one, and it simply wasn't there. He said the intensity wasn't there, uh, and they were really careless with the ball as well. Um, I thought Norwich were were good for a point. You can generally tell Manchester United formed by how David de Gea plays, and he was he was their best player at the weekend. And um, yeah, Rangnick was pretty stinging, and maybe that's good, you know, winning when playing badly, cliche klaxon, but. Uh, it was Norwich and they were poor. Mm. Midweek, Norwich are going to be facing Aston Villa. All right, Daniel. Dean Smith up against his former side. That's at Carrow Road, isn't it? Yeah, Carrow Road on Tuesday. Mm. All right, so no homecoming there. Meanwhile, Man United, COVID tests permitting, will be at Brentford. Last time they faced Brentford in any competition... It was 1975. They haven't faced them in the league since April 1947. Wow. I was just going to say on Man United that obviously this is the start or or the Crystal Palace game was the start of a run of fixtures where it's 13 league matches, which is over a third of the season, and they only play one team that is currently in the top half, and that's West Ham at home in, in that run of matches. So this that's that's a really incredible. Run. I think I think Brent, Brentford maybe did they get into the top half after this weekend's win? Incredibly kind run of fixtures. I obviously you know that that means that at the end of the season they're going to have a particularly tough run in, but it mm. does mean that Ralph Rangnick does have a period of three months of 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 a time, especially when there's no Champions League action as well, where. Well, you can really get into a run of performances and results that, that can he, he can take the momentum into that final run of matches. Mm. By the way, Colin, I'm, I'm sorry, nobody mentioned the Northern Ireland accent. I'm not quite sure what happened there when we were discussing the sexiest <laughs> lilts well, in the... Uh, I, in the I thought it went before I'd say in, but... Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> of course, we all forgot you even had an accent. Then I was just reminded then. When, uh, the Red Devils are now just a point off the top four, so... Looming ominously. And more on all of that kind of thing uh, next, along with details of Daniel's Homeric Odyssey to the Stadium of Light and Back. Hello, 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 listeners. How are you? You may well have nodded off in the past, but that's how myself and Charlie get to talk on. And if that's the case, let me reintroduce myself. I'm Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power, and I'm delighted to say that I've wormed my way into an earlier section of the show in order to massage your ear canals with my dulcet tones. You'll be getting all the latest odds from me based on what the football experts have just debated. Now to look ahead to this Norwich game against Aston Villa on Tuesday. This game sees Stevie G lock answers with his predecessor Dean Smith. He'll be desperate to show his former employers that they acted too hasty. This game won't be an easy one for Aston Villa though, as the Canaries, despite their loss last weekend, were added to the long list of clubs to make Man United look ordinary this season. Norwich are 11 to 5 to grab the three points. The draw is 9 to 4, and the Aston Villa win is 5 to 4. But just how good Gerrard is in the dugout is yet to be determined. We know he's good listeners, but just how high is the ceiling? It's certainly early days in his management career. Klopp still runs until the summer of 2024. But remember, the Paddy Power Traders listeners sleep with one eye open. We make Stevie G the 6 to 4 favourite. Be the next permanent manager at Liverpool. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think.
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Daniel, the longest journey facing any fans in the Football League this season is an 800-mile round trip from Plymouth to Sunderland, or vice versa. You did it this weekend. Crikey. Yes. Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, I, I kind of wanted to obviously tell the stories of some fans who who make that journey. Plymouth are an exceptional football club because uh, their shortest away round trip this season is 315 miles uh, to Cheltenham. And most of them are <laughs> far more than that, double that. Um, they're the rem- most remote football league club in the country and therefore it's an a huge undertaking they make every fortnight and they took nearly a thousand fans to to Sunderland at the weekend and back and yeah it was it was 21 hours from start to finish 4:30 on on Saturday morning we met outside the ground and we got back at well I got to my hotel at, at 2:30 on uh Sunday morning so 22 hours later uh, and of course you had to get to Plymouth to even start this journey from yeah, do you know, the thing is, I, I thought that was a kind of little badge of honour that I could just sort of casually drop in on the coach to a couple of people. And the, the, the lads I was sitting directly next to, I sort of, we were chatting and I said that and they said, yeah, but the thing is, is that we live in Camborne in Cornwall, but there's no football league teams in Cornwall. So what they'd had to do is get the 10pm train on Friday night to Plymouth, then spend four hours sat outside Home Park in Plymouth, waiting for the bus to then go to Sunderland. So even that, they, they kind of do you on loyalty. So, mm. yeah, you haven't got a leg to stand on. They are they are a phenomenal set of supporters. They really are. I'm not just saying that because I spent the weekend with them. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking every season. I think they, they travel something like 3,000 miles more than any other set of away fans every season. Right. Well, famously, everybody hates a tourist. So what was the reaction to you kind of dropping in on their kind of away day hell? Yeah, I mean, they, I'm, I'm sure they were probably suspicious at, at first, but um, no, they, they were really, they were lovely people. They just wanted to talk about how much they love Plymouth Argyle and how much they love following a team that demands kind of a, a greater loyalty in terms of time and money than, than other clubs. Uh, and they're a really, you know, they're a good club. They're a club that looks after the supporters, which is, is necessary when they're travelling right. that far. Are you now an Argyle fan? Were you kind of dragged to the back of the bus for some weird initiation? <laughs> no, everyone was very, very sleepy on the way back. But um, right, what about on the way going? I mean, what did they do for all those hours on a coach? Do you know what they just they just repeat the same conversations you'd have in a pub about your football team? They talk about team selection and they talk about. It, I mean, it, it's it's nonsense, really. I, I'd like to say the time went quickly, but uh, <laughs> it, it didn't really. Um, there's a thing with the Southwest that everyone who lives outside the Southwest gets, which is that you assume it's sort of Bristol and then a little bit more. And then you're on the coach for three hours and you've only just passed Bristol and you think, yeah, it's quite a, it's a bigger country than I thought. Right. All that way. And Plymouth mm. were 2-0 down after just 13 minutes. Yeah, yeah, they were absolutely wretched in the first half an hour. And it should be said, three days before the game, their manager walked out to go to Preston. Uh, so they've 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 appointed Stephen Schumacher as as uh, who was his assistant as the new manager. Um, so yeah, they were top of the leagues five weeks ago, and now they're sixth and clinging on to a playoff place, and um, which just makes it you know 
the sort of groans in an away end when you've travelled for nine hours and your team has conceded twice in 13 minutes is mm. is something else. But um, yeah, the piece is going to be out on Tuesday. I wanted to do a kind of long read about their connection with the club and, and the kind of things in English football that are worth cherishing at a time. And there's a lot of kind of grim news about Super League breakaways, etc. Mm, indeed so. Well, fantastic stuff. Look forward to reading that. Let's move on anyway to the midweek games. Man United uh, supporters, uh, hopefully we'll be getting on coaches for their long trip to Brentford. It's about what an hour around the M25 from uh, Surrey. <laughs> That's on Tuesday, as is Norwich's game with Aston Villa. Uh, Man City will be taking on Leeds. Leeds actually won this fixture last season. In fact, Marcelo Bielsa, one of Pep Guardiola's managerial heroes, took four points off Pep's side in the last campaign. On Wednesday, you've got Brighton against Wolves, Burnley Watford, Sean Dyche up against his old club, Crystal Palace against Saints, who have won five of their last eight league visits to Selhurst Park, and Arsenal against West Ham. And by contrast, David Moyes hasn't won any of his last 17 visits to Arsenal. Then on Thursday, Liverpool against Newcastle, Chelsea Everton and Leicester Spurs. Again, fingers crossed on that one. Thursday night football for Leicester and Spurs, which they'll be used to, of course. And this coming a week on from their Europa and Europa Conference exit. Spurs, it looks likely uh, by default after they cancelled their game with Wren because of COVID positives. Leicester, after their defeat in a thrilling match in Naples, which meant that uh, they're in the draw, which is this Monday morning for the Europa Conference playoffs. Uh, as Brendan Rodgers commented, I don't even know what that competition is. I mean, he does, surely. Gotta be honest, I'm not clear what it is myself. The Europa really? I, don't, I just don't get. Really? I just don't get it. I don't, right. I mean, what's the point? Well, that's a different question. Yeah. I, you know, one which you could extend to kind of pretty much every activity in life, I, I guess. But <laughs> I I'm feeling like if you if you're in a Europa League group with the risk of dropping down to something called the Europa Conference League, you probably know what that is. Brendan Rodgers, he's possibly not the most focused on Europe. He doesn't have have the best of, of records, does he? In in terms of Continental Cup things. His record is, is really, really poor. I mean, when you, when you look at sort of the teams he's had, obviously he had a time at Liverpool um, when, they, when he made no advancements in Europe and then at Celtic and now at Leicester. And you kind of think that that group that they didn't get out of, and it's a little bit deceptive because obviously Napoli have been flying uh, this season in Serie A up until, up until the past month or so. But last week they had so many players unavailable or mm. injured. It was almost a second string team and they were 2-0 down within what, 15 or 20 minutes at the start of the match and then to come back and then to lose it again. And it's been a recurrent theme of Leicester this season. They think they've now conceded 40 goals across all competitions and that is just, that is just far, far too many. And yes, they are missing uh, Wesley for Fana, who got who got that horrible long term injury in pre season, but you, you, they have the fitness problems over Johnny Evans and then Kaglar Chunchu mm. who's come in and he just seems he just seems very error prone. But I think it's more the the sort of structure that Leicester have defensively has been has been very very weak and very vulnerable this season. And you keep seeing it again and again that they're vulnerable from set pieces, they're vulnerable on counter attacks, and there's just too many individual errors. And for a team. Who yes they, they do have they do have talent going forward but I don't think they've got quite enough of an attack and threat to compensate for having such a such a leaky defence and Sunday's went over Newcastle I think was their first clean sheet since since the start of the season so it, it, it's something that it's something that they really need to build on mm. only the second win in the last uh, seven in the league as as well but I guess answering a lot of the the charges that you lay at their door albeit against Newcastle four nil Sunday afternoon uh, James Madison. 
shining once again, continuing his his recent resurgence. Brendan Rodgers, for all his inability to spot set-piece defending problems, he, he knows what to do with James Madison, which is that when he plays well, you bring him off after a between 80 and 83 minutes and let the Leicester crowd kind of give him their adoration. And he kind of looks around hugely happy and then you give him a massive bear hug and tell him he's brilliant and he'll probably be good again next game. That's That's the kind of the two plus two equal four stuff with Madison. They're just playing him and playing him and getting him back into form. And even Yuri Tielemans was kind of keen to point the crowd towards Madison when he set him up for the goal. And um, yeah, they are delighted to have him backfiring again. Mm, Leicester looking uh, exceptional in this game. Four goals, most of them pretty special as well. Pats and Dak are playing up front in place of Jamie Vardy. And uh, mind you, as I say, all bit against Newcastle. They're now up to 34 goals conceded in their 16 matches so far. And this before, they travelled to Anfield on Thursday. They're finished, Newcastle. They'd needed to get some form of momentum after that after that initial first win. And it almost looks now like that the big celebrations, the big social media posts, were just because that's going to be their only win of the season. Just, <laughs> you, need, you need to get some momentum after, after, after that. And if you're going to Leicester, they, they probably would have fancied themselves on the break against Leicester because Leicester have conceded a lot of goals to not score against one of the most unorganised defences at this point now. They needed to get something and I think they're finished. Wow. As I say, Anfield on Thursday, which could be interesting, unlikely to be 4-3, you're suggesting, Dan? Very unlikely, I would say, yeah. I'd, right. be, I'd be shocked if they had a shot on target after Villa didn't manage one. Is that the is that the fixture with the greatest kind of disconnect between perception and, and what actually happens regularly on, on the basis of those two games from the 90s? Well, funny you should say that, and segueing into the dullest game of this weekend, but uh, I saw on, on Twitter that, Burnley West Ham 0-0 was the first time that game has been 0-0 in 72 meetings which right. given that I assumed it happened probably one in every two or three times they met is um, is quite impressive It's the Paddy Power Football Supporters Support Line we're talking to Burnley fan Graham what's up Graham? Oh it's Christmas Paddy uh, Not a Grinch are you Graham? Oh I love all the midweek fixtures the quick turnaround between games So why so glum? Well it's the work Christmas party the five-a-side drinks schoolmates dinner makes it very hard to watch all the football The Premier League is non-stop this December so make the most of it with Paddy Power's Bet Builder offer Get money back as a free bet if one leg of your Bet Builder lets you down Paddy Power Pre-match online Bet Builder bets only minutes one to five per leg min four plus legs max free bet £10 per day excludes enhanced match odds T's and C's apply 18 plus be gamble aware this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Other big winners of the weekend beyond Leicester included Arsenal with their 3-0 win over Saints and Palace with a 3-1 victory over Everton, ending Palace their three-game losing streak and recording their first home win over Everton for 27 years. Wow, lots of love here for Conor Gallagher, who got a brace. He's now on six goals and three assists. In fact, Duncan Alexander pointing out that he's got as many league goals this season as Harry Kane, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Lionel Messi combined. Extraordinary. However, Daniel, digging a little bit deeper, 
There's somebody else who perhaps deserves the accolades from the Palace fans. Yeah, I just it, it, I thought Will Hughes played really well, making his first start for Palace. They, they've been demanding he plays instead of Luka Milivojevic for a while because Milivojevic's his legs aren't quite there when he doesn't have James McCarthy next to him, who's been who got injured and is going to be out for a while. And I just thought Hughes was Hughes is the one that enables Gallagher to go forward and stay forward, not have to do this kind of box to box thing, which means that later in the game he looks fresher and is able to do more and not kind of look tired for 65, 70 minutes. So um, that has to be the way forward for, for Vieira, I think. Mm. Meantime, for Everton, who had beaten Arsenal in the previous match, they kind of resumed their slump. They're now on one win in 10 Premier League games. Unhappy scenes, the supporters chanting about Rafa Benitez after he took Richarlison off. Uh, for Rondon. Rondon, who did actually get his first Everton goal, uh, which didn't seem to help very, very much. Uh, the situation there, I mean, Dan, you're calling uh, Newcastle has finished. How do you feel about Everton? There's a lot going on at Everton at the moment, isn't there? A, a little bit too much. There seems to be a lot, a lot of distractions. The Luca Digne stuff, they can't afford for things like that at, at the moment. And Benitez hasn't got enough credit in the bank or any credit in the bank to be able to pull manoeuvres where you're leaving out one of their best players based on some form of fallout. They just can't be doing stuff like that. They obviously miss Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He's, he's a huge miss. The Richarlison, even him being substituted, looked a bit bizarre that he felt he could, he could stay on, but Benitez and the medical staff felt otherwise. There just seems to be a massive disconnect between between all aspects of the club. At the moment, that there isn't really anything you can say that's going well at Everton. So they're going to be very, very likely to be sucked into some form of relegation battle this season. When you say the medical staff, they've already had the team doctor fired after some form of disagreement there uh, this season, uh, along with Marcel Brand uh, also making way of late. So, yeah, a lot of issues there. Not least, uh, you mentioned Dominic Cavett-Lewin's absence, but Rafa used to be famous for at least organising a defence. And that seems to have completely gone out the window at at, uh, at Everton. But I think I think when you whenever you look at uh, the career of Benitez and, and yeah, he, he has this this track record of organising defences. But that was always that was always what people said about Jose Mourinho as well. As well. And and you sort of look at the the kind of how his career has gone the past five or six years. And 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 what happens is whenever you have these these sort of evolutions, I suppose, in coaching and tactics, it's the methods that worked maybe ten or fifteen years ago aren't aren't quite as successful now and Benitez always had this uh, this reputation as somebody who was never never much of a man manager he was always somebody that mm. that prioritized you know his his sort of tactical setup and he didn't really have time for sort of close relationships with players and whilst that's something that that might have been more successful previously I'm not I'm not really sure that that will work now and you look you look at how quickly the the relationship which which inevitably I guess broke down between him and the Everton fans as soon as results started to go a little bit wrong but when you look at the relationship between him and the players, certainly from certainly from the sort of optics of it, of how it comes across with the Lucadinha situation, and then with how Richardson reacted to being substituted yesterday, that you know you almost have players who look like they're in open descent and who don't really look like they they believe in what they're being sent out to do and. It, it's almost a little bit strange because last Monday's victory over Arsenal, they they almost seemed to feed off the the energy of of the crowd, and and the crowd stayed behind the players in that game, and like it was a very good performance. And Everton, despite having to get a last minute winner, they were what a cumulative inch away from scoring four goals in that match. They really took Arsenal apart for for large parts of that match, and it was a really encouraging performance. But then just to slip back into Sunday's defeat, which was almost like a 
it's almost like a performance of nothingness. You know, they, they, it was like the, you, you kind of knew that Crystal Palace were going to take the lead, and Everton just didn't really have a response to it. And it's just so it's just so disappointing in in the sense that Everton have spent so much money, but they're such a such a badly run club, and it's just really not good enough for a team that has the, the caliber of players they have to be to be so disorganized. I think Seamus Coleman is often now acting as the mouthpiece of the club because they're obviously Everton fans aren't going to hear what they want from Rafa Benitez. No one else at the club in the hierarchy is really saying anything. So he looks like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's making mistakes, a lot of mistakes. He made one the other week. It was against Liverpool at Goodison. And that goal at the end against Crystal Palace, I think he's tried to kick the ball against a Crystal Palace player, mm, got yeah. it wrong, and, and they've ended up scoring. I think the commentator on match of the day was quite kind, saying, oh, he's tried to play the ball forward and get them moving. He didn't. He's tried to kick the ball against a Crystal Palace player, missed, and Crystal Palace have ended up sealing the game. But he looks all over the place, and he, he's the club captain. He's been there a long time, and he will know that it's all a mess at the moment. And again, that's been reflected, like Colin says, on the pitch. Crikey. They'll be at Chelsea midweek. Rafa can expect a... A warm welcome there, of course. As for Arsenal, beaten last Monday by Everton, they had a 3-0 win over Southampton. As ever, the Gunners turning it on when it really matters. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, an important win because of the, the kind of off-field circumstances immediately prior to the game with Arteta mm. saying that, that Aubameyang had been dropped for the second time for a disciplinary issue. He was also dropped before the, the North London derby in March. Um, and clearly the decision to give him a contract seemed bizarre at the time and seems even, even more so now. But the fact that Martinelli and, and Lacazette and Erdegaard's now coming to the goals as well, it, it, it provides a mandate for Arteta to leave Aubameyang out. This isn't a case that you know he is their best attacker anymore, so he has to come on and play when, when he's ready, which can kind of dilute the impact of any disciplinary action the club takes. So it was crucial in that regard. They're lucky to play a Southampton team that are, when they are bad, are, I think, probably the worst team in the Premier League uh, in terms of defensive disorganisation. They're impossible to work out. They, they, it's only a month ago or six weeks ago they were winning three or four games 1-0 and now they look like they can't defend a cross or defend a ball into the box. It's, they're bizarre. Mm. So that first goal, the the lovely 16-pass move for, for Lacazette's uh, opener, was that down to Southampton basically oh, being slightly more yeah. mobile training cones? Or? Yeah, I was going to say, it looked like to me like a training goal. There's an argument not to put pressure on the ball higher at the pitch if that's your defensive plan, which is we'll sit mm. deep and look to defend the ball when it's 30 yards from our own goal. But Southampton kind of played out that whole move without getting into the same postcode as the ball, basically. And huh. yeah, it's uh, that's poor. Yeah. It's it's uh, almost hard to believe that it was only a year ago, pretty much this week, that Arsenal played Southampton in this this midweek round of games as it was a year ago. And I know it was slightly earlier in the season in terms of the number of games played, but Southampton had a chance. If they had have won at the Emirates last season at that point, they would have gone top of the league. And it ended up being a 1-1 draw, and you kind of go, oh, Southampton are flying. And that regression in, in, in that space of a year, and again, as Daniel said, they're such a hard team to work out because they, they've got a sort of good core of players, but they're such a, they're such a thin squad, and, and I think whenever things don't go right on the day, whenever they don't get their pressing game right, and they don't get their structure just spot on, it, things tend to fall apart very easily for them, and I don't, I don't think they're real, really in the relegation mix, but it's just odd to think that, that in a year they've regressed that, that much. What I take from that, Colin, is that anything you say on a football podcast around December of a season means absolutely nothing. 
Yeah, no, but absolutely. But it's it's the thing that you you do tend to leap into these judgments based mm. on form in the first half of a season, and and because you almost forget how how long and a season is, and how injuries and player absences can can influence things and yeah. and, and change it. Dan, sorry, I was just going to say, do you not think Southampton are in the relegation mix, Colin? I, I would have them as one of the three to go. Oh, no, I, I I wouldn't have them down there. I, I think I think whenever you look at the squads that Norwich, Newcastle at the minute, and, and Watford have, I think Southampton have more individual quality. I think they've got they've got more of a consistency across the pitch, and they've they're strong. They're starting eleven. I think is strong in all areas. Whereas if you look at some of the other teams down there, outside of a couple of attacking players, they are a, a lot of them. You kind of think they could easily be teams who are in the championship this season. I think so. Southampton are just just about will have enough to to steer clear of that. They're currently five points above the bottom three. So you're three to go down, Colin? I would say Norwich, Newcastle and I think Watford. Because right. I think I think when you look at Burnley's situation, they've they've only won once all season, but they're they're always just so hard to beat. And it, it only it only takes one or two matches for them to sort of get on this mini run and pull themselves away and they've done it so often before. I would I, I've written them off too many times, I'm not gonna do it again. And you know who Burnley have this week? Watford. Watford. The team immediately above them on the other side of that dotted line. Extraordinary. Daniel, you're, you're three to go down? Yeah, boring, but the same as Collins. I, I, I do think Southampton are bad, um, and I, think, I don't think they'll be far above it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think Watford are probably the most controversial one of those choices, and that may well depend on whether Claudio Ranieri is still there in two months' time. Because what? Well, the, the last time they were in the Premier League, they sat Kike Sanchez Flores after 10 games. Ranieri's had nine. And he's lost seven of them. So it wouldn't be a huge shock if, if, if Watford lose to Burnley this midweek. It wouldn't be a huge shock if they made a change again because that's what they do. And they, they look really poor defensively under Ranieri. They, they basically had a spell of about 15 minutes under his management where they scored four goals against Everton and two goals in stoppage time against Man United. Hmm. And outside of that, they've been absolutely dreadful. And yeah. there's been no obvious improvement. They're taking fewer points per game than they were under Cisco Munoz. They're taking, they're having fewer shots. They're conceding more shots. So, I don't know. I feel like Ranieri might be sacked by February the first, which would be very Watford. I, I think the nature of that defeat on Friday against Brentford as well is, is so damaging because Brentford had quite a few players out. They they were not playing well and, and to be 1-0 up seven or eight minutes left and to go on to lose from that position, it, I think that that's something that, that can really just knock the confidence and self-belief of players and Watford I, I I think Watford are a little bit like Newcastle in this regard and that they've got these two or three really good attacking players like Emmanuel Dennis Ishmael Assar and Josh King who are all in good form but when you look when you look at the sort of defence in the midfield they just haven't had they haven't had enough investment in those areas and, and they've almost tried to get by with signing players and freeze or, or loan deals for minimal fees and whenever you don't have that sort of cohesion there as well they, they just seem like they're too easy to score against and obviously that's reflected in the numbers but these are like like Newcastle, you know, you can. It's almost like you can score as many goals as you want, but if you don't have that defensive structure in place, you can't. You can't get away with that over the course of a season, and, and you will be dragged on. And they, Watford and Newcastle have sort of healthy goals for numbers this season, but when you're conceding so regularly, you, you will get beaten by better teams, and that's just what's been happening. Watford are the only team in England's top four divisions yet to keep a clean sheet this season. On the subject of nice numbers up front, quick shout from Manuel Dennis, who has now scored or assisted 12 Premier League goals this season. Only Mo Salah has more. So there's that. All right. Next up, speaking of things going down, we'll look back on the day there was that parachuting Santa. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will come in handy when Mikel Arteta finally bends the process altogether. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply and please gamble responsibly. It's Monday the 13th of December. Also with you today at some point will be the Totally Football League Show with Derby defender Curtis Davis uh, joining the team to discuss, well, the 5-5 draw between Oldham and Forest Green, I reckon, and, and probably some other stuff as well. Uh, totally Football Show European Edition, you have to wait till Tuesday for that, but it's worth that wait as uh, we'll be looking back on the Champions League and Europa League playoff draw reaction thing and uh, also other things like Real Madrid, their 2-0 win in the Madrid derby and other stuff as well. A little bit more Spanish stuff with Colin in a second, but a shout-out as well for the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, which is out on Tuesday, and they'll probably be all over the shock result of the season, Reading's 1-0 defeat of Chelsea. Michael Cox marvelling at this one. Great performance, this says Cox. He was not easily impressed. Fourth-minute goal on the counter-attack from Reading. 86 minutes of fantastic last-ditch defending, including their 0-0 draw with Juventus last midweek. Emma Hayes' side have now had 59 shots in two games without scoring once. Crikey. Of course, the one, one strike that did find its target in last week's game against Juventus was Sam Kerr taking out the pitch invader and everybody cheered. Mm. Uh, except, Daniel, some striking news about that uh, from the, the Met. Well, yeah, but I mean, apparently it seems that the police can't charge a pitch invader entering the pitch at a women's game because it, it isn't classed as a designated football match, which, I mean, is clearly just a, a complete oversight, which will hopefully be changed very quickly, um, but is obviously absolute nonsense. Um, on the Sam Kerr thing, when I initially heard about it, you kind of have an image of, of what that, that is, which was... I assumed would be the, the the supporter kind of trying to run onto the pitch and Kerr just kind of sort of stepping in their way to block them. It is far, far funnier than that mm. because Kerr goes at a faster speed to make contact with the pitch invader than the pitch invader is going at. It's absolutely brilliant. It's as they're leaving the pitch and she just really barges, obviously taking out some frustration from the fact that Chelsea haven't scored and gets a booking, which is well worth it. Well worth it. Bodied him. That's how I've heard it described. She bodied him. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. She did, she, and she did very literally do that because she put her whole body into it. She almost left her feet to do it, which is great. Magnificent. 
Well, as I mentioned, it is the 13th of December today. And as it happens, it was on the 13th of December 1998 that a young Dan Bardell was at Villa Park for a memorable, for good and uh, less happy reasons, a match between Aston Villa and Arsenal. Villa were 2-0 down, Dan, and then came back to win 3-2 against the champions. Yeah, I remember the game really well. I think it's one of those ones, if there hadn't have been the big Santa hitting the roof incident, you still would remember it because it was a real famous coming back from Arsenal, coming back against Arsenal, sorry, from, from 2-0 down. I remember Burkamp absolutely bodying Villa. In that right. in that first half, he was he was unbelievable. Burkamp, my, my favourite ever Premier League player, and he, he took Villa to the cleaners pretty much on his own in that first half. But yeah, the the famous incident that I'm sure you're going to describe better than me, James. Well, no, I don't think so. You were there. I mean, we all chuckle at it when you say Santa hitting the roof, but it it, it you know it wasn't at all fun as it turned out. This is former RAF flight sergeant uh, Nigel Rogoff, who who actually ended up losing a leg after crashing into the Trinity Road stand, dressed as Father Christmas. Yeah, parachuting in as a, a charity initiative. And it was a bit of a bizarre stunt, to be honest. Not the kind of thing you, I've seen at many football matches, and I'll probably never ever see it again now after what happened. But it's one of those ones where he he almost didn't look like a real person coming coming down. I don't, I don't right. know what what went wrong, but as he hit the roof, it didn't look like it was a real person. So the initial reaction from the fans is to go "way," and then suddenly you realise that it's a human coming down and yeah, I'll, right. I'll never forget the the way he, he hit that roof and then it hit the floor it was absolutely oh, harrowing it was, yeah, it was horrible horrible scenes and you know you're 2-0 down at the time and you think the game's just gonna gonna go the game's mm. gonna get gonna get called off you're not gonna see the teams out for the second half but there was a real extended half time and Villa came out a different team I've interviewed John Gregory on it before and he decided that he was gonna going to make a substitution. He told Julian Joachim he, he was coming off. So Joachim had slipped his boots off and was just sat there knowing he wasn't coming out for the second half and Stan Collymore was replacing him. But during the extended break, John Gregory changed his mind and decided to leave Joachim on. And then he was he he ended up not coming off. Gareth Barry came off for Stan Collymore instead and Villa went 4-3-3 instead of the, the five at the back that they were playing and, and turned the game round and, and won 3-2. And it was a real famous comeback. But they're... The nice end to the story is that the, the Nigel, who obviously the Santa that, that that hit the roof, he ended up meeting his future wife that day. She was one of the paramedics. I've absolutely no idea if they're still married, but they, they certainly got married after that. So there, there was at least a happy ending to the, to a horrible event. Mm. Crikey! It sounds like you've been duped by a live action Christmas film. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. the Santa that hits the roof and meets the love of his life is like. Everything on Christmas Twenty Four Channel at the moment. Yeah, everything that's on my Skybox that my wife records <laughs> at, the, at the moment. It sounds like. N- Nigel also subsequently took part in a three thousand miles. How's some of that, Plymouth uh, fans? Three thousand mile Atlantic <laughs> crossing with a crew of other uh, military veterans uh, who nicknamed themselves the Legless Rowers. So well done for that. You say you don't often see that kind of thing. There was that incident last summer though of a. He wasn't quite a parachutist. He was more of a... He had a motor on his back uh, and, and was doing the stunt for Greenpeace. And it came down, almost took out the press box in, in, you know, in a similarly dramatic fashion at the game between France and Germany at Euro 2020. Yeah, it wasn't... The parachute was, like, cut by... Was it, like, there was a wires at the top of the, the stadium where, where he came in. So the, the wires sort of cut off the parachute and it just went out of control as he 
entered the stadium and he had to sort of like guide himself round and he mm. narrowly missed the the start the, the footage of that was incredible he was so close to the press box he actually took out laptops on the way uh, very very dramatic he he thankfully did manage to you know ground himself uh, safely anyway there you go uh, well that that's quite a memory there uh, Dan. Uh, Colin, meanwhile, I mentioned the 2-0 win for Real Madrid in the derby on Sunday night, which wasn't a huge surprise, and given Barcelona's issues at the moment, not not that remarkable, I guess, that Real Madrid are in, in front and eight points clear at the moment. But I think what's causing a lot of comment in Spain is the identity of the two teams in the top three with them, Real Betis and Sevilla, the two Sevillan sides. And, you know, Craig, you're the man who wrote the book on, on Sevillano soccer. So is this something that's sustainable? Is it just a coincidence that they're both up there or is there something special going on right now in Andalusia? Uh, it's, it's a bit of both. I think when, when we think of Sevilla and you think of six Europa League titles in the past 15 years and continued investment, uh, especially in, the, in recent seasons, that it's no surprise they are certainly in the top four, if not slightly pushing on from that. I'm actually slightly disappointed uh, with Sevilla this season uh, and not just because of their almost disastrous Champions League exit. They, sh- they should have got through the, the, the group they were in and, and mm. they did underperform. But Sevilla's sort of successes, certainly certainly in, in Europe in recent times, have come with this sort of high intensity and the fact that they, they kind of swarm teams and, and try to be aggressive and get on the front foot. But this season, it's a little bit different. They, they almost seem like they are, they're very defensively solid, but they're a little bit slow almost. Their central midfielders, Fernando and Ivan Rakitic, and they're both midfielders now well under their third and the tempo of the games they play at tends to work quite well in La Liga, which is maybe a little bit slower than, than say, the European fixtures. And they tend to grind out a lot of wins, as they did this weekend. They won 1-0 in, uh, away the Athletic Club in Bilbao. And that was, a, to be honest, it was a very undeserving victory. But they, they're grinding out these results, and they're sort of just about staying within touching distance of Real Madrid, although although I, I don't, don't know how long that's going to last. I think, I think Betis is a much mm. stronger story this season in terms of what they have done under Manuel Pellegrini, who was appointed 18 months ago and he was appointed after they finished five points above the relegation zone and in those sort of season and a half that he's been at the club they've only spent a transfer fee on one player Herman Petzela the central defender and that was only three million euros yet they are now third in La Liga they finished sixth last season they're into the knockout stages of the Europa League and they're they're playing really really good football and uh, Nabil Fakir and Sergio Canales are just two players who are who are very they're they're fun to watch. Like they 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 like to express themselves on the ball, and that they're they are they're a team who take risks, who take chances in the final third, yet are, yet are defensively quite solid. And now they they're just having this wonderful season. And on Sunday they beat Real Sociedad four 0 and at halftime they had the they had their sort of annual tradition now of of inviting their their fifty sixty thousand home fans to bring uh, stuffed toys into the stadium to throw onto the pitch at halftime and. There were sort of thousands of toys then collected and, and, and sent off to children's uh, charities over Christmas, which is, which is a fantastic initiative. And I'm actually I'm actually surprised it hasn't been hasn't caught on a little bit more mm. in terms of in terms of other clubs and other other sports. But although there was that, that pig's head thrown on once in in Catalonia, I'm not sure if that was part of the same. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slightly, slightly different atmosphere. I think. Right, that. right. Um, but uh, but the, <laughs> the better the better half time. It, it almost it actually that that event in itself almost created like a, a party atmosphere. And then Betis came out after the break and scored three more goals. And they're just they're just in fantastic form at the minute. The, the thing about La Liga this season is that everybody, including myself, went into this being like, oh, this is going to be a, you know, there might not be the most quality that the league's ever had. But it's going to be a really competitive title race. You know, it's going to go down to the wire again and. You're actually looking at it thinking, well, Real Madrid are the one team who are really, really doing very well and starting to pull away a little bit. No, mind you, a year ago, you just said Southampton were flying and about to win the Premier League title. So who knows what could happen, Colin, between now <laughs> and the end of this campaign. Uh, Cracker, there'll be more on uh, the latest event in La Liga in, of course, Tuesday's Totally Football Show European edition. But I think that pretty much brings us to the end of today's show. Many, many thanks to Colin and Dan and Daniel and producer Charlie and you listener join us again Tuesday and then Thursday as well why not and for now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show part of the Athletic Podcast Network listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.